My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Tochi Anyabuchi. Tochi is the award-winning author of several works of speculative fiction. His most recent novel, Riot Baby, was published in January 2020, and it's the center and heart of our conversation today. It is a searing, powerful, sad, moving deeply insightful and perceptive take on what it is to be black in America, on our prison industrial complex, on what it is to have power and freedom. It's an incredible work of fiction that brings to life the moment in a way that no other book I've read right now is doing. So if you're at all a fan of science fiction or speculative fiction, I highly recommend you check out the book. But frankly, it doesn't matter. Tochi is, uh, regardless of your opinions on, on science fiction, Tochi is a deeply thoughtful human being who has some real wisdom to share on how we move in this world of ours, on how we live, on how we connect. There's so much here, and in a way, we only touch the tip of the iceberg. I'm also really excited because he actually has a work of nonfiction coming out soon. It's called Skin Folk. And as I understand it, it sort of exists in dialogue with a, another incredibly important work by Chimimanda and Adichie. Americana is the name of that. And Tochi takes his own emotional and intellectual journey through his education in blackness and this upcoming book, Skin Folk. And my sense is that much of that journey shows up in fictional form inside of Riot Baby and also shows up in our conversation today. So if you care at all about questions of the future of our country, of racism, systemic racism, systemic injustice, on what it is to reach reconciliation, if that's even possible as a country, as a result of our long history and legacy of slavery and racial oppression, if you care at all about any of those topics, this conversation is for you. So let's get settled in. and hear what Tochi has for us. Hi, Tochi. Hello. How are you? I am doing really, really well. I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, likewise. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's such a treat. I'm really glad that that Ken introduced us. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, he's. I feel like he's got um, an incredible talent for bringing for bringing people together who are likely to have incredible conversation oh i know yeah we were saying before we started recording what a generous presence he is mm-hmm. you know uh, he's so busy and has his his mind and his heart in so much different work and yet somehow he's one of these people who when you're with him he's just he's just with you yeah and absolutely he's just present. like totally present and and Kind of had when I said who should I invite, he was like, "You got to invite Tochi." He just was like, "Right with that." So I'm really psyched because this is I'm sort of just the show is just in this phase now where I'm starting to talk to people who who I haven't encountered at all in my in my three dimensional life or now my two dimensional you know COVID life. But just so you know, I, I have your book Riot Baby here, and it's had been on my list for a while. And then when you said, yeah, I'll come on the show, I was like, well, shit, I better read Riot. I better get out there and read Riot, baby. <laughs> so it's just really fun to, to, to meet you in this way and to meet you with this book kind of inside of me and with some of your other writings too. And so we'll see where we go. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. The question that's been, um, that sort of has just 
for some reason, I keep, I've been sort of thinking, where do I want to start tomorrow? And the question that keeps coming back actually has to do with where the book starts. So maybe we could start where the book starts, which is, which is the birth of one of your two main protagonists against the backdrop of the Rodney King riots. And, and the question is something like, how or when did you know that this book, that the, that the start of this book and the birth of this character, the riot baby, was going to be set against the backdrop of the Rodney King riots? Was that like the, the catalyst for the story or did, did that emerge as you got to know the characters? Like, say a bit more about that origin. So I think, you know, that section, the South Central section, um, you know, that is one of the reasons why I am so grateful for the editing process, because that section was actually written last. Wow. Uh, the first incarnations of Riot Baby started with the Harlem chapter and, you know, pushed through Rikers and and then to Watts. And over the course of editing, like, it, you know, it, it took different, the story took different shape or at least reorganized itself a bunch of times. And I think my editor was pushing me because at in earlier incarnations, it was very much Kev's story. Mm. It was about Kev in Harlem and it was about Kev in Rikers in particular, and then Kev in Watts and Ella was sort of paying witness to it all. Mm. Um, and there was very much this, this, Greek tragedy dynamic going on where she has all the power, yet she's powerless to change the one thing that she wants to change, which is, you know, the fate of her younger brother. Um, and my editor pushed me to explore Ella more mm. as a sort of standalone character, as her own character. You know, what is she like and, and not as a foil for her younger brother? And so, you know, I was thinking to myself, wait a second, these kids are, you know, about the same age, maybe a little younger than me, Ella's about my age, which means that Ella would have been alive for, oh my goodness, the riots. And so like that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, was how, that was how that happened. And I think part of it too was that for me, the, for me, Rodney King was maybe my first political memory. Mm. Um, mm. I remember being a kid and in the mornings before, you know, mom or dad would drop us off for school, they would show footage of, uh, Rodney King's beating on the news. It might've actually been on like the Today Show or something that like looking back might've seemed wildly inappropriate for like <laughs> before, you know, before school drop off. But, um, I remember that being my first my first sort of political memory, you know, there's, mm. there's that mm. and OJ. Um, but I, it's, it was interesting looking at that through the prism of particularly the last, I'd say half decade or so. Yeah. Um, and you really, you really see this issue of continuity. And that was one of the big themes that I'd been wrestling with, with Riot Baby. And when that, when that South Central piece clicked into place, I was like, that's the book. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. the book. So, you know, I am immensely grateful to my editor, Roshi Chen at tour.com for, for pushing me there because, you know, this would be a very different book otherwise. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm really glad. I, I knew there was a reason why I wanted to ask that <laughs> question because it is, from my experience reading the book without any of that context, the, and I'm also uh, of an age where for me, the, the, there are, those are early political memories for me too, of course, filtered through, through a white suburban lens in a different context, whatever. But yes, I'm very like, whoa, I haven't really thought about this in a couple decades, but it actually is a really formative period for a lot of us in our thirties and forties. And uh, it feels like, it was a central idea this that like the question I'm tuning into is what are all of us born into? Mm. What are, what is around us when we're born that we don't have an intellectual awareness of yet inevitably kind of implacably shapes our journey. And I feel like that this book is about that. At least one theme of this book is how we are shaped by the world we're born into. Absolutely. I mean, there's also, too, a little bit of, of Midnight's Children at work. Mm. I was very, very, very taken with that book when I read it. It must have been back in 2014. I was in law school and doing a book club with some, with some classmates of mine. And just the very conceit of 
okay, these children that are born at this very, very, very specific moment, like the, like literally the like moment of partition and how does that determine their, their fates? And it also, it was this very interesting marriage of the geopolitical and the supernatural. And Mm. I, I was very, very, very taken with, um, because it seemed a very concrete manifestation of a lot of my preoccupations with regards to the anime that I would watch or the manga that I would consume, where you would have the geopolitical factor and you would have the supernatural factor, but here they were one and the same. Mm, Yeah. And it seems like you're playing with those questions in this book, the sort of the intersections of who we are and the context we're born into and the way that those, the way that shapes us, but also the way that with certain powers and perspective, we also might be able to shape those, those forces. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's sort of like um, a feedback and a feed forward loop. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the same time, uh, you know, we can change our circumstances, but you know, we'd be lying to ourselves if we said our circumstances didn't act on us. Yes. Um, And I just find that, you know, it's, I mean, that's the, the sort of both the joy and the plight of being a human being, (laughs) you know? Um, And, you know, especially looking at the current political moment where so much is in flux and you're seeing so many institutions uh, whose foundations have been revealed as, you know, as shaky as, you know, many of us Mm. have known them to be, but, you know, you look at, for instance, the Supreme Court, you know, the federal judiciary, which, you know, historically has been, or at least, you know, looking at it from the present or recent past down through history has worn this cloak of majestic neutrality, Mm. right? The Supreme Mm. Court is ostensibly separate from political machinations. Mm. You know, it's, it's not prone to, you know, because of lifetime appointments and, and this, that, and the third, and, you know, the, the type of character that we would put on the Supreme Court, you know, this highly, highly, almost overeducated person who, you know, can sit on Mount Olympus and judge from on high. And, you know, we always, or at least I believe in our education, both in the classroom and out of it, you know, we're taught that the Supreme Court is, is safe yeah. from, you know, yes all the, the, the nonsense that goes on in the executive and legislative branch, uh, that's very much not the case. Like the <laughs> Supreme Court is a political institution. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the past four years in particular, maybe even the past eight for a lot of people, have really revealed that, have really revealed the, you know, something like the Supreme Court, which we just assumed almost like artificial intelligence, you know, as like not, <laughs> you know, it, it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't carry the worst of us. It doesn't carry our biases or anything like that. What in actuality it does, those things are baked into the, the institution itself. Um, and, you know, you look at that and you're, I think a lot of those institutions, you know, were seen also as as unchangeable hmm. in many ways, or it, you know, it didn't seem as though the process of change could be immediate, or at least the shaping of those things. And I guess what I sort of mean by that is, you know, you look at, say, for instance, the liberal Warren Court, um, and then you look at, you know, the court that had Justice Taney, who did the Dred Scott decision, hmm. and mm-hmm. these things seem almost cosmic in that we can't like touch them or shape them. We can't put a liberal justice on the Taney court. We can't put a conservative justice on the war. You know, it's that sort of thing. But you're looking at it now and you're like, wait a second, I can see a direct through line between how I cast my vote in a midterm election Mm. and then the person who gets put on the Supreme Court when there's a vacancy. Mm. Like that through line, I think, has been revealed for a lot of people in a way in which it was previously obscured. And so I like I'm constantly thinking, particularly in political terms, the ways in which, you know, environment acts on us and we act on our environment. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I really am excited. I was this is a sort of question I was thinking through and you're really living it right now, which is you, we have this, I I sense that we have this drive or this desire to 
collectively sweep things under the rug that from whatever position of power we have in our lives, wherever that is, that there's always a part of us that kind of wants to kind of take the things that we don't want to really see and push them out of the light. And one of the ways we do that is by kind of granting sort of what you described is this, this sort of up on high pedestal, this perfect authority, this majestic neutral neutrality. If only such a body could exist in the world, then we'd all be safe. Or we could all finally trust e- each other in authority. But, but what we keep discovering is that there's nowhere to push the stuff. There's no rug to push anything under that. It just kind of, kind of comes back out the other side or something. And I, and I wonder as a person who is both an artist and a person who's deeply steeped in sort of understanding of the law and of politics, I wonder how you hold that conversation. Like I sense in a way that Riot Baby is a sort of attempt or an offering or an invitation to be like, uh, this rug you thought you put everything under, (laughs) like take, take a little bit of a closer look. And I, so I just, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is, it's funny. This interview is a neat bit of synchronicity because I just finished reading uh, Shadow and Act by Ralph Ellison. It's a collection of his Mm. essays. Mm. And he talks a lot about specifically this dynamic in American literature and how, you know, in in the 19th century, you had authors like Melville and, and even Mark Twain to a certain extent who were confronting the question of race relations in America in their own way. And mm. particularly in, in, in a time like the 19th century, you can't avoid it. You can't really, you know, it's everywhere you look. Yeah. And, and how the only real, at least at the time that he was writing, the only real authors or at least white authors who were doing that were, you know, perhaps Faulkner. Mm. And that American literature was suffering as a result of it. Mm. And I feel as though one of the things that he was getting at was the idea of morality in literature. And that isn't to say morality in terms of the actions of your characters or that, you know, you can't have morally abhorrent characters in your fiction or they must, you know, conform to a certain pattern or the idea that depiction equals validation. Not that, but morality in terms of wrestling with fundamentally moral questions Mm. in our polity. Um, I think some of the most compelling American literature has been the literature that has been able to stare the, the, you know, what has been swept under the rug in the face mm. and to confront mm. it. I think, you know, that's, I think, one of the reasons why Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad is as lauded as it, as it is, is because it does exactly that. You know, the literature of Jasmine Ward, mm. she's, I think, one of our greatest living, mm. living novelists because she's able to, you know, literally just stare it right in the face and quite eloquently, you know, describe and dissect a lot of those situations. And so I think, you know, it's something that I've tried to do with, with Riot Baby. And I think another thing too is that that tension is something that I'm very much drawn to. Mm. Um, I'm very much compelled by it. I'm very much interested in it. And I think, you know, people talk about, you know, the great American novel. Um, and, you know, that to me, it's, it's, it's useless as a qualitative designation, but it's useful in terms of sparking barbershop conversation. <laughs> you <laughs> nice. know, like, I love that distinction. Yeah. Yeah, like people say, oh, who are your top five greatest rappers alive? Like, and it's such a stupid question. (laughs) How are you going, like, you know, Jadakiss and, 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 you know, I don't know, um, TI, like, what do they have in common, right? You take, like, you know, New York rapper, you like Nas and Bum B, like, how you can't compare that, right? (laughs) Yeah. But it's it's fun conversation to have, and you get into all sorts of really interesting discussions, and they can spin out into really meaningful places. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think it's similar with conversations about the great American novel. Like mm. the very that question can prompt then, okay, what what does it mean to have a great American novel? What is also what is an American novel? You know, arguably, Interior Chinatown is an incredibly American mm. novel. Mm. incredibly American Um, and just like really, really, really good. Um, But I think 
you know, so much conversation about the great American novel, at least over the past, I'd say, half decade at least, maybe or half century at least, um, maybe even even the full century, um, almost seemed to elide that moral dimension. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, people would talk about novelists like John Updike, and like I, there's. I, I mean, I feel comfortable saying this. There's nothing that interests me in a John Updike novel. <laughs> <laughs> I have no interest whatsoever yeah. in anything that he's writing about. Anything. Um, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't see it. Like, yeah. I, I don't see it. And so I think there's, you know, it calls for a certain bravery on the part of the novelist, mm. particularly if there are white novelists looking at you know, the quote unquote race question in America, mm. um, you know, and writing from that particular perch of privilege. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to just have a whole conversation about John Updike now, but I'm not going to do, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You wrote an essay, um, blanking on the title. It's something like I have no mouth and I need to scream. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I have and no I, mouth and I must scream. And yes. I must scream. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> as you, as you, sort of described the literature's avoidance of, but also real unique capacity to sit and stare and understand more deeply and, and go into that level of depth. It made me think of that essay because there's, and maybe this is just sort of part of the paradox of, of any act of creation and exploration. Like there's a way in which, for instance, I'll speak for myself. There's a way in which I can read Riot Baby and kind of give myself a little pat on the back for for being like, okay, I read I read Tochi's book about the and it and it and it alludes to the the industrial prison complex and it alludes to revolution and and so like I'm I'm on the right side now you know like there's sort of there's mm-hmm. a difference between the reading of the kind of encountering in a documentarian way a part of reality versus the engagement with that reality. And I don't know that like maybe that difference exists on a spectrum or a gradation and that you need one to get to the other in some cases. But I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit more. Like what are the ways in which you are inviting people into more than just the sort of I'm sitting on my couch having this experience into the kind of polity, like into the actual civic world that we're all trying to co-inhabit? It's interesting. My my thoughts on empathy and reading have definitely evolved over the years that I've been active as a novelist, um, mm-hmm. especially jumping into the young adult space. There's so much talk of an emphasis on um, reading, fostering empathy and mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. as a way or books as, you know, empathy machines and you know, not only do you have in depicting, um, you know, non-white protagonists or situations that are outside of, you know, white suburban environment, you know, the the potential for uh, recognition on the part of readers who don't normally see themselves in these books, but you also have this almost educational function where you have, mm. you know, white readers or white suburban readers who are being exposed to different situations, different um, types of heroes, that sort of thing. And the idea, it was almost very utopian. You know, the idea is that, you know, if, if enough of these books go out into the world and reach enough of these kids, we'll be able to, you know, foster some sort of cross-racial solidarity or like things will get better, right? We just need more of these books. And I bought into that, you know, in the very, very, very beginning. But the, the further I progressed and the more that I thought about it, um, the less effective books and literature in general seem to be in terms of completing that mission or at least Mm. effectuating that result. Because you think about it, Toni Morrison's books have been around for decades, but like Breonna Taylor was shot while she was sleeping. So, you know, when you think of it that Mm. way, you're like, what are what is literature actually accomplishing with regards to our civic relations and now don't get me wrong i do think that books play an incredible role in our collective mythology and our imagination i don't think barack obama gets elected absent the literature of tony morrison mm. in the american mm. mind space mm. at the same time i don't think you know books are the you know panacea for the world's ills um 
I think, and one of the images that, that, you know, constantly came into my mind as I, you know, in the, right after Riot Baby came out and as I was talking about it and doing events was there's a, there's a specific corner in the book, a street corner in Harlem, 145th and St. Nicholas. Um, and I, when I lived in Harlem, that was a very sort of prominent street corner for me. Um, mm. you know, the, the subway line was there for the ABCD and I lived on 152nd at the time and I was constantly going by there. And I, I would think when I would try to sort of render all of, all of these dynamics that I was thinking about in concrete form, I would think of this image of, you know, a white person reading Riot Baby on the street as they're walking down the sidewalk. And as they approach that corner, 145th and St. Nicholas, and see a group of dudes similar to the group of dudes that Ken, Ken yeah. hangs out with yeah. crossing the street to avoid them yeah. <laughs> while they're reading this book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So uh-huh. that is very much how I how I saw things. And I, I think part of it, too, has to do with the idea of reading as an empathetic act. And by nature of being an act, it is finite. Mm. It's mm. not something necessarily that extends beyond the the immersive experience. You know, in, in reading, you can be educated about a thing. You can learn something. You can be like, oh, I didn't know it was like this in South Central. I didn't know it was like this in Harlem. Or I didn't know that, you know, jail does this to a person. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I didn't know. I did. But in terms of empathy, I don't think that, that you know, exists outside the four corners of the reading experience. Or I don't think that dynamic is sort of taken with the reader um you know it's like i don't need to have suffered from third degree burns to imagine hellfire Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's less to me a question of empathy and more a question of sort of emotional imagination Mm. Mm. yeah I, i sense that there's a there's a possibility that exists however indirect and however unpredictable that the person walking down the street reading your book will at some point have the capacity to hold steady if someone said, hey, like, why did you just cross the street, right? Because like, it might not be a one-to-one immediate, like, oh, I'm reading this book. Oh, I'm in the scene right now, you know, like, but mm-hmm. there's but there's now like, the, there's now the capacity for that kind of emotional and moral imagination that you just named mm-hmm. might not have been there before. Like, I think that's how I'm grounding in art's role in the public conversation and art's role in this, whatever journey we're on as a species is once you've experienced an act or an event, even when it reaches completion, there is now memory. There is Mm. now something, some kernel of possibility that may or may not take root that may or may not sprout back up, but it's like, it's now in the soil that, and it wasn't before. And that, and I sense that's what you're describing. It's not like, Hey, you, you read the book and you change, but rather books are a part of our ability to have a more deep and complex emotional and moral imagination. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I I think back to my experience of reading um, there, there by Tommy orange. And I, I know perilously little of the experience of, Native Americans in the United States, right? Like I, I know a little bit of history and, you know, I have friends in indigenous communities and, you know, I've, you know, read about it from time to time, but in terms of seeing uh, grounded fictionalized experiences, I hadn't come across that all that much. I mean, the only sort of native authors that I think most Americans are exposed to on any sort of regular basis is like Sherman Alexi, right? And reading there, there was such a revelatory experience um, because it informed so much of, of what I thought, but also what I didn't know. And what I didn't know, I didn't know. Like, I didn't know that powwows in, you know, in the modern day have the character that they had in, in his book. Like, I didn't, I didn't know that they were like that. I don't know what I was expecting a powwow to look like, but like, I didn't know. And so seeing 
seeing depictions of that and seeing all the ways in which humanity sort of moved in and around, you know, that particular social function was incredibly illuminating. And that's knowledge and information that I take with me into the future. Um, and I, I think part of the, part of the empathy question to me goes to the, the, the idea of humanity, right? There's, there's always talk in literature of humanizing certain populations, particularly, oh, pop yeah, it, it's, oh, it's wow. one of the most frustrating things in the entire world. I've because never it's thought like, about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because it's like, why, you know, am I really trying to plead <laughs> oh my, God. my so the, the case for my humanity yeah. to this outside read? Like it's, it's so, fr and like, you know, if you, if you don't necessarily have any background context for it, you're like, oh yeah, no humanizing. That seems like a really good, but then you start to think about the underlying assumptions yeah. and you're wow. like, okay, okay, that's, this is incredibly problematic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. All right. Yeah. I want to just sit. I'm like finding myself pulled in about three different directions right now. Hmm. So there's a scene in, in Riot Baby where Ella goes to, uh, to a racetrack. Mm -hmm. And I think it's outside New York or out somewhere in Connecticut or New York. Um, and I think this scene is coming up. Like, I think I'm remembering it right now in the context of what you just shared, because there's, there, there seems to be, to me at least, a way in which Ella is going there to meet some need in her, to sort of, to sort of bear witness to the ways in which the power structures that we that we supposedly believe in and that supposedly keep us safe and all of that are actually producing a version of pain and suffering and and kind of sad mediocrity and like all of that, like she's just sort of encountering that part of the whole system that also has done so much harm to her and her family and to her communities. And, and yeah, I don't know what my question is, but I'm just kind of tuning into that, like bearing witness piece. And I wonder if you could speak a bit more about, about what, and I, and I invite you to speak either for Ella as the character or for yourself, what was, what was happening for you as you wrote that scene or what was important to you about that scene? So it's funny. It's actually based on a real experience. Um, my, it was my first time at the racetrack, um, and, and seeing a horse race and it was at the Belmont. Um, and so it's like so many of those details in there, especially about like mm. the, the mm. kids, like dragging the cooler and everything. And they're yeah. all dressed up and everything and how it's like Derby weekend. Um, <laughs> All, all true. Um, wow. But I, 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 I'm glad you you alighted onto that scene because I think there's an interesting thing going on where Ella is essentially misreading what's going on, right? Mm. So she mm. she goes to the racetrack, she sees this squalor, so to speak, and her interpretation is: look at all these these white people who think they're better than us, mm. and look at what they look at what they do with their freedom. Right. Mm. Um, and what she misses is the ways in which, you know, white supremacy and its sort of economic manifestations and political manifestations ground down like everybody who's not a have. Right. Yeah. Like you, 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 if it's not as though it's not as though everybody who's white is doing better than everybody who's not white. Yeah. And Ella yeah. doesn't necessarily see that. Ella doesn't necessarily see that. Oh, like some of these people live in trailer parks because they lack housing. And some of the, some of these people just don't have, you know, resources that maybe she in her life might've, might've had, or might've been born with. She just sees, look at these, look at these white people squandering their freedom, their resources. If I had, if I was born with what they were born with, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be gambling, you know, uh, tuition money at a racetrack. Mm. Um, but I, 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 it, it was so, it was so interesting to me to have her there because by that point, we're so attuned as readers to the lens through which Ella's uh, seeing the world that we may not even notice that bit. We may not even think that she's wrong in thinking mm. the things that she's thinking, mm. right? Mm. Um, mm. Because of how her life has, has 
has gone up until that point and what she's been exposed to and the sort of manifestations of whiteness, um, even on behalf of people who aren't white, like, you know, some of the cops who harass Kev are Asian, right? Like it's the, you know, when you have that, essentially the evidence that your life is put in front of you, oftentimes it can lead you to miss larger dynamics or miss yeah. certain dynamics. Um, and so she just looks at that and sees, uh, she doesn't see necessarily, um, white people having been put there by forces greater than themselves. She sees white people putting themselves there. Mm. Like choosing to do that with their freedom. Yes. And I really appreciate that you, and this is important. You, you said something earlier, like confusing uh, depiction with, with validation. And I hear you kind of as an author holding complexity well, without trying to like insert it into Ella's experience, because from where Ella sits, it makes so much sense that she would go to Belmont uh, and and just kind of scratch the itch of like, here's why I need to do something, or here's why I've been given this gift of power, and at some point, this all this all needs to go because look how look how pathetic this is, right? And so you're sort of enabling her growth, but also in a way that you can see is sort of yet again, the same force is working on her to, to continue to drive her in a certain path that may not necessarily be a healing path. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, hmm. There's a, I, I, I don't want to like, I'm trying, one of the dances I'm trying to do is to talk <laughs> about the book without talking about the, you know, there's the whole culture of spoiler alert, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> But I'm, I'm really one, and I, and I hope you take this as a compliment, one comparison I couldn't help but making when I reached the end of the book was the same experience I had when I reached the end of the movie, The Matrix, which is sort of like there's, there's a, a vision of a possible future that the book doesn't actually go to. It's like the movie ends with a beginning and the same way that The Matrix kind of ends with a beginning I could even say the the book ends with like like a birth, right? In the same way that it starts with a with Kevin's literal birth, there's now like a birth into some awareness that's happening. And I wonder if you could talk in whatever way you feel comfortable about that about what what the book is sort of birthing at its very end or what it might be birthing at its very end. That is probably one of the most flattering comparisons <laughs> okay, that good. I think I've good, ever yeah. <laughs> received. Because oh, I love goodness. The Matrix. Not, yeah. not everyone does, but I fucking love The Matrix. So I was like, like oh, he did The Matrix move on this one. <laughs> to be put in the same sentence as that masterpiece from the Wachowski mm. sisters, mm. like, mm. thank you. Thank okay, you. good. I'm glad that landed with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I greatly appreciate that because in many ways, the the comparison does stand you know the matrix ends with neo flying right like yeah flying he he literally does the superman yeah, thing it's so great <laughs> and they've been alluding to how that is an impossibility throughout the entire movie mm. Mm. and he does this impossible thing and so i do think that you know there is there is a a genre of that or an echo of that you know, with the end of Riot Baby. The thing that I wanted to do with the end of Riot Baby was sort of put the ball in the reader's court. Mm. Um, mm. You know, the that very last word in the book, I wanted the reader to individually interpret it, knowing that there would be as many different interpretations of that word as there were readers. Yeah. Um, what does that what does that word look like to you <laughs> the reader um i'm not going to tell you what i think it looks like um, can i can i say the word or do you want to yeah. leave that okay so the last word in the book is freedom yes <laughs> yeah yeah that very 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 intentional and yeah. um cuz at at a certain point what i think the word means is almost immaterial because yeah. like this whole reading writing exchange this is you know this is a partnership and now it's mm. your turn to do some mm. work, <laughs> to mm. do some work you know yeah well well maybe i could share what came up for me as i reconnect to the moment when i finish the book and we could play with that rather than you feeling like you have to <laughs> speak your interpretation i think the the two the two things i'm noticing now one thing that came up to me was like 
oh shit, <laughs> like <laughs> this is this could be really brutal. That was like, and there's some fear there. Like there's a part of me that felt the fear of look at what we've created. Look at what we've tried to sweep under the the rug. That's now kind of coming back out with a force that's uncontainable. And, and I felt some of the fear of that. And um, another part of me felt the joy at, at Kevin, Kev, Ella's brother, at, at the sort of the way in which his uncertainty, his kind of internal paralysis, like all of it finally gets released. Like it was sort of a sense of his I see freedom for myself was part of an interpretation I made that he was seeing that. And then there was a third part of me that like feels a bit of sadness for kind of for everyone. Like just that it's, there's a real tragedy. I think you called the book kind of a Greek tragedy and there's a bit of a tragedy and there's a part of me that just really the word healing comes through. And, and there was part of me that was kind of sad. like, well, what if we can't, ever actually heal this what if there is just the inevitable kind of if anything comes out of the ashes the phoenix out of the ashes but maybe it's just ashes so i welcome you to like play without without having to kind of co-sign on any of that (laughs) i just wonder as you hear me one reader's response to the ending of the book i wonder what that evokes in you and and what comes up for you yeah, I think the idea of what if it's just ashes is so powerful because it's so terrifying. Yeah. yeah. It's so te- like what if what if it doesn't get fixed? Mm. And that like cuz then you're like what are we even doing? Like <laughs> what does all this even mean? Um what does it mean for those who came before who were working to And it's I think there's you know, I, I think that dynamic is part of what plays into, I think, a strand of, of Afro-pessimism, right? Like, because mm. so much of the the problem of, and it's, it's, it's going to sound weirdly obvious to put it this way, but so much of the problem of racism in the United States is like white people, right? Like, <laughs> what? Like, duh. Like, you know, galaxy brain. Um <laughs> It's, but it's, it's the sort of intransigence of it. Right. And there's, uh, I, I feel like, and I feel like actually this is something that folks over the last four years have started to realize, or some folks at least that I've been in conversation with is that, you know, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for white people, or at least a critical mass of white people to have this sort of road to Damascus moment mm-hmm. where they're like, okay, um, we fucked up or, you know, our ancestors fucked up and we fucked up by continuing a lot of the, you know, the, the situations and dynamics that they um, initiated in many ways. So we're going to sacrifice some of our power to, you know, make for a more equitable society. And, you know, we, you know, decades pass, centuries pass, and that doesn't happen. I mean, Mm. it happens in fits and spurts, but mostly following conflagration. Mm. Slaves Mm. are freed at gunpoint. You Mm. know, we get a civil rights act because, you know, presidents are tired of seeing American cities on fire all the time. You know, Mm. it's like, it's like that Mm. sort of thing. Mm. Uh, And, you know, there's, then there comes the notion, okay, what if there is no road to Damascus moment for white people? What if they just don't decide to change? Like, what if, like, cause like, why would you willingly, why would you willingly give up power? Mm. Right. Mm. Um, you look at so many of the civil rights advances that have happened, particularly along a racial vector in the history of this country. They, it, it's not as though, you know, white people out of the goodness of their heart decided, oh, we're going to desegregate schools, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not like, you know, one day they were like, oh man, you know, that whole segregated lunch counter thing, we should probably, should probably yeah. stop that. Poll tax? Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a bad thing. We should just stop. No, like the, pe- people had to fight and literally put their bodies on the line for those injustices to be, to be cured. And so, like, what if it all just, like, bur- you know, there's... I know I'm jumping around a lot, but 
there's that that series of films that Steve McQueen, the filmmaker, just put out on Amazon Prime, um, Small Acts. Mm. And one of them is uh, a movie starring John Boyega about a, a young black man who enters the police force and essentially becomes a beat cop. And this is, I think, in the 80s um, with the intent to reform police from the inside. Uh, and... Haven't watched it yet, but I can. I'm already. It's, I'm already. Ra- ra- yeah, like I'm already seeing the tragedy. Yeah, it's so. It's so like, and he does it. He he feels as though it's possible. He really does going in, and then he sees what he's up against. He yeah. sees just how baked into the very structure of police that this that racial bias and racism is. And he has a conversation with his father who was assaulted by police like very early on in the movie um, about his frustration. And like there at one point, he's like, sometimes I just feel like burning it all down. And the movie ends like that's it. Like, there's no <laughs> his oh, dad man. doesn't try to, like, you know, make him feel better or anything like it literally just ends on that point. And I that resonated with me so much because sometimes like that's it. And you think, for instance, about people who who died before seeing Barack Obama elected or people who died before they got a chance to sit at a desegregated lunch counter, Mm. people who died Mm. before they got the chance Mm. to vote, Mm. who died before this or that or the other, you know, civil rights advancement. The bad part was the end for them. And that's so like frustrating and terrifying and heartrending to think about. Man. Yeah, that's a, sorry, you just kind of crushed me a little bit. That's yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it is heartrending. Yeah, it's heartrending, and it's, and it's like you know, for for them, they never got to see the road to Damascus moment for white people, and I, it's like, what would it feel like to be them and to sort of, you know, live and eventually die with this unfulfilled hope, <sighs> right? Um, what does that? What does that? feel like and i guess one of the things that could drive you as a as a human being is the hope that you know that change will come even though the process will outlive you right Mm. there's that there's Mm. that notion and i think a lot of people um that sustained them um but for a lot of people like the end is the end and they're like like it didn't get better Mm. which is terrifying and that i think is why the idea of what if it's just ashes is almost like existentially horrific is because like that, you know, what, what are we like, what's the point? Right. Which is such a, which is such a dangerous question to ask. Such a dangerous question to ask. Yeah. But, but I'm so glad you're tuning into that because then there's the part of me and the part of us that wants to sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. But it's like, how can we, with clear eyes and a strong back and an open heart, sit with these kinds of questions? Sit, really sit, and look at what if it's just ashes? Yeah, no, and and that's why I'm I'm so grateful that there's a diversity of perspective, and like not everybody thinks like me, <laughs> um, because like you know, it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that you know that there is such incredible and remarkable activism with regards to so many different issues of civil rights in this country. And, you know, it, I don't know that you could have my perspective and enact the, the change on the ground in Georgia that was enacted in Mm. this recent Mm. senatorial Mm. election, right? Like that, that fatalism, that's deadly to the idea of getting people out to vote, right? (laughs) Like, so I'm immensely grateful for, for people like Stacey Abrams and the, you know, the, the, the women from the organizations that she worked with to, you know, turn Georgia blue in many ways. And I I mean, just a slight tangent, a lot of, a lot of what people call red states are really just blue states in bondage. Um, So that, but that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. That's a, that we could really unpack, we should unpack that at some point, but yes, I, I, there's a cold craziness in our electoral system that we could explore. Yeah, and it's like th- that that hope that you will see change um, is super powerful. And I think one of the things that allows people to keep 
moving and it's so it's it's almost like a mini death when you lose that yeah yeah damn (laughs) (laughs) that was really powerful thank you tochi um there's a thread that came up earlier that just just came back to me which was actually around the question of of power are you familiar with Resma Menikim's work, his book, My Grandmother's Hands? No, I haven't. I haven't so read he, it. it's, uh, it's one of those books that for me is maybe analogous to your experience with There There, which I haven't read, but now I know I need to, is, is he shares, it's a story about basically uh, the way that what he calls white body supremacy, he makes that distinction, mm. injures and wounds all of us including those of us with white bodies. And among the many reasons why that book has, was really important for me and I think is resonating with a lot of people is he points to the fact that the idea of whiteness, the concept, the invention, which a lot, we often hear, oh, race is a social construction. Well, well, there was a moment in the late 1700s or early 1800s where, where wealthy landowners saw that 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 white body and black body and brown body workers, all of whom were basically getting the real short fucking end of the bargain, you know, to varying degrees, mm-hmm. um, were were starting to align with each other. We're they starting were unionizing. To, they were starting to unionize and <laughs> see their their common shared interest and shared shared alignment. And and so so a move, a really kind of canny and, and scary and, and Machiavellian move was to go, oh, well, here's how they're different. Because look, we have the same kinds of bodies. And so the langu- the word white entered the kind of lexicon of writing. The first time it ever appeared was like in that early 1800s. And that was used as a way to essentially bring some of the, the land workers into alignment, right? And it's sort of just like, fuck, right? Like mm-hmm. this, like, I never knew that. It's so fucking pernicious. And now here are all of us 200 plus years later, still, still doing this dance, still doing this, this fight, still doing this kind of like clinging to something that was never, like yeah. it was never yeah. real. Yeah. And so I just like, I just, there's a part of me that's really, that's the, I think that's my version of the anger that you talk about this book, like you, in the, in the acknowledgements of the book, you talk about how, how N.K. Jemison's writing helped you write anger. And like the way I encounter that anger from my place of privilege and from my kind of, is like, I'm so fucking angry that those people mm-hmm. created a division that now you and I have to sit here and talk about. And I love that. I love, I'm, I'm, I love that we can talk about it in a way that's loving and compassionate and that brings us closer, but I'm really fucking angry that, that that wedge got driven in. And yeah. I just I, like, I wonder, so what I'm wondering about as I share that, that insight for myself is, is Resma's book is all about healing. How do we heal? Mm. And I wonder how you're in conversation with the question of healing and maybe you can talk about it through the lens of Riot Baby, or maybe you can just talk about in your own journey, like in, in the context of what is going on and as you look out in the world through your, your writer eyes, through your political science, your lawyer eyes, like how are you seeing the question of healing in, in all of this? How are you relating to that? Certainly. I think it's, you know, it's, it demands the participation of all parties, um, and I think that, you know, it to me, it's, I see it a lot in the very idea of literature, right? So, you know, what, what's, what's the point of books or why do I write, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it isn't necessarily to change anyone's mind because mm. like that, I, I can't guarantee that that's ever going to happen with anything that I write. Uh, and I think it's dangerous to go into writing with the assumption that, oh, I'm doing this to like change someone's mind or I'm going to mm. educate them about a thing. I'm going to introduce a new perspective that's going to, because there's no guarantee that you're going to introduce any change into a person's um, mind state, opinions, whatever, right? Um, and also too, that's assuming that your book gets in the hands of somebody who's amenable to change. Yeah. Um, 
But for me, one thing that I've seen over and over and over, um, and that has been sort of reinforced through my writing and reading experience, is the idea of alleviating aloneness. Mm. And so I think this is where a lot of the power of representation can come from, is that, you know, reading in being the sort of empathetic act puts you in the company of others. They're fictional others. But that you you know you're not alone for the duration yeah. of yeah. your reading, and if there's somebody on the page who you know in whose situations you can see your own situations, in whose life you can see your own life, in whose skin you can see your own skin, um, that can be so powerful in alleviating a sense of aloneness, mm. which you know particularly now so many people are feeling right, and. That it's interesting because that to me seems like a genre of almost intra community healing, right? Yes, yes, and a way of sustaining each other while we wait for the other party, um, on the other side of the color line to like get their shit together and like you know, we can have our meaningful conversation, right? Because I feel like that's such an important part of it, right? Because I feel like, particularly black people, you know, we we've worn ourselves out in many ways trying to yeah. like, <laughs> you know, trying to heal racially. And it's not even like, Oh, the bill has come due for slavery. So we want, you know, what you owe with interest or anything like that. It's like, we just want to be like, equal. we just want to not feel hunted. Right. Like that yeah. things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing about it is that, you know, you, you look at the, the vast majority of, legislators, United States legislators, right? Look at the vast majority of high school librarians. You look at the vast majority of prosecutors. You look at the vast majority of school principals. You look at the vast majority of actors. You look at the vast majority of film editors. You look at the vast majority of landlords, the vast majority, Hmm. everywhere. Hmm. The Hmm. vast majority of them are white. Hmm. And, and, you know, that, you know, not to get into the sort of elasticity of, of whiteness, but, you know, the vast majority of them, what they have in common is that they're white. And if healing is to involve both black and white parties, it can't just be the party with less power doing all the yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. And that I think is one of the most important things It's like, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in high school and college studying um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I was constantly running into people who were talking about it as though it were two equal polities duking it out. Mm. Like mm. it was two, you know, mm. sets of people with equal capability right. who were wow. fighting over. Yeah. And it's like, that is not even remotely... No. The situation, right? And the way that they would talk about, or the way that they would castigate the failure of, of, or castigate Palestinians for the, you know, failure of peace deals and whatnot, as though both parties had equal, like, stances of power going in, like, that to me just seemed so fundamentally flawed and wrongheaded, almost, like, intentionally so. Mm. And mm. so I'm always, whenever there's talk of healing or of a healing process, I'm always cognizant of power dynamics. Mm. Um, mm. Who has more power? Who has less power? Mm. Um, because if it's the people with less power that are being asked to do all the work, <sighs> yeah. um, is that even healing? You know, it's, you know folks, folks want absolution without doing penance. <laughs> yeah. So well said. Yeah, that what's coming up for me as you share that is just kind of the like there's a, there's a possibility and this is a hopeful possibility, right? We talked about hope before we, mm-hmm. we started recording the fear. You also talked about power. So the fear is that if I were to fully take responsibility for my both singular unique place in our collective fabric as a white guy, as a white man, cisgender man, like even some of those, those words are triggering for some white guys, right? Even just to say I'm a white guy is triggering, right? So, mm-hmm. so just like 
So that the fears of even using that language is a version of the fear of like being asked to look under the rug. It's a version of the fear of like, what if it's all ashes and, and, and the sort of tragedy, the wound that's been done to people with white bodies is a sort of sense that we have to retreat into this little kind of contained identity that has looks as, you know, your house looks a certain way, your life looks a certain way. And the, and the people at Belmont that you depict in your story, it, it, like there's like, they've suffered that, the, that restriction too, because it, the tighter that, that closes in around us, the fewer and fewer of us actually fit into that, even those of us with white bodies. And so the, the healing that I'm hopeful about is actually a recognition that, that what we're afraid of, that, that the releasing of that constriction, we think that's us falling apart. We think that's us losing power. But actually, like, I, I think that's the space where now finally power can start true healing power, not like control power, but like aliveness power can start to flow again. And we can start to see that like, oh, I don't necessarily have to die. I'm not going to fall apart and be destroyed simply by acknowledging that we've got some really fucked up history that we could do a lot better. And that actually in my heart, I know it could be more beautiful and better too. And that I that that the world where Tochi and I can just sit down and be humans, not to shortcut the work, not to like bypass all that, but just that 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 is a possibility when and only when we finally do our own work and do our own healing so that we can come together. I think that's kind of what I'm what's enlivening me in this moment as I hear you speak is like, hey, don't pat don't put it back on me, bro. Like you gotta <laughs> you gotta really sit with it and don't worry, like you're gonna be okay. But you mm-hmm. got to sit with it. Yeah. Otherwise, we're just going to keep doing this. We're going to keep constricting. We're going to keep sweeping. And then the conflagration is just going to burn that much brighter. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's so powerful the way that you put it too. The this idea, because for a lot of people, they do feel as though if they acknowledge, verbalize their privilege, they'll fall apart. Yes. I think that's a huge fear. Yeah. Like that, like, you know, their entire conception of themselves will fall apart. And, you know, that's part of the, the insidious nature of privilege is that in so many ways it's invisible. Yeah. Now, privilege isn't necessarily in the form of benefits accorded to you so much as it is um, impediments taken away. Hmm. It's easier for you to do this. It's easier for you to do that. It's easier for you to do the other thing than it is for this other person here. Uh, because this other person has the barriers put up that you don't have to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. not as though necessarily you're being given a jetpack. <laughs> it's that the other person is literally in chains. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. Mm. Tochi, this is. I'm. I'm aware actually that we just passed our time boundary, <laughs> so that's my bad. Um, if you have. <laughs> A few more minutes we had talked about the possibility of you reading a passage from the book do you still have time for that absolutely absolutely so so before you do that i just want to say one i'm really touched and grateful for your presence in the world for you showing up for this meeting with a stranger and having what felt to me at least like a really meaningful and authentic conversation um and I can't wait to read more of your work. For me, Riot Baby was the first. I know it's your most recent, but I'm excited to go further down the rabbit hole. I appreciate that so much. This was such incredible conversation. Oh, thank you. Um, well, uh, I'll say thanks to everyone who listened in and, and then uh, we'll go ahead and I'll pass it to you when you're ready to read whatever passage you want to read from the book that you feel called to. Certainly. So the the passage that I'll read, it's a very brief scene from uh, the South Central uh, chapter, the first chapter, I guess you could call it a chapter, um, of Riot Baby. Mm. Good morning, Junior Church. As tall as Brother Harvey is, his suit always seems too big for him. Too many buttons. But it never falls off, no matter how much Ella and Kiana and John A. giggle at him. None of the helpers down here in the church basement wear the white gloves the ushers upstairs in the grown-up service wear, so Ella can sometimes see the tattoos on their hands. Brother Harvey moves back and forth in the little row of colored lights thrown there by the stained glass windows with orchids etched into them. 
How many of you pray? He asks in his too big voice. He sounds like God. Ella raises her hand. How many of you pray every day? She puts her hand down. John A keeps hers up, but Ella knows she's lying. You don't pray every day, she hisses. John A cuts her eyes at her for a second, but keeps her hand up. How many of you do things that are wrong? Ella remembers that time she lied about putting her clothes in the wash and instead stuffed them into the closet she was supposed to hide in whenever bangers congregated in the alley behind the house. And she puts her hand up. God says, Brother Harvey booms, if you do things wrong and come to me, I'll forgive you. He walks over to Kaylin, the little boy three down from Ella with suspenders and a clip-on tie. Brother Harvey's hand rises like he's going to hit him. If I hit Kalen here, what is he supposed to do? Forgive you, all the kids shout, except Ella. That means Kalen's not supposed to hit me back, right? Ella wonders what she would do if Brother Harvey hit Kalen with that too big hand of his. Now I'm not saying Kalen shouldn't defend himself. He puts his hand to Kalen's head cups it. Kaylin, you say, Brother Harvey, I will defend myself, and then, at an appropriate time, I will forgive you, and I will do both of these things vigorously. The air starts to change the same way it does whenever Ella catches herself daydreaming, imagining, and she sees an older Kaylin filled out an all-man, working in a hospital as an orderly, and all his patients are old, way older than him. And over and over, the old patients, when they get slow and know it's not going to be too long now, ask him to sit with them. No bang, no blue bandana, no pool of blood on the sidewalk. Reflexively, she grips the tissues in the pocket of her frilly dress. She's up in the front, and a nosebleed now would embarrass her in front of everybody. But it never comes, and she lets go of the tissues, and pretty soon they're singing. Brother Harvey says a prayer for all of them anointing them. Then he sends them back out to their parents or grandparents or people who act like their parents because they need to. Ella's so tiny that when the ladies crowd around her, their big hats come together like pink flower tops to hide her from the sun. Mm. Thank you, Tochi. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.